Hello, I'm Sarah Connolly. Now, normally I focus my podcast around professional women's cycling and cycle sport, but today I've got a really exciting guest who I've wanted to talk to for ages. Um, Isabel Clement is the director of Wheels for Wellbeing, which is a charity that basically campaigns and does work around cycling as a mobility aid for disabled people and about basically helping disabled people enjoy the magic of cycling. Isabel, welcome. Good morning. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your work that you do? Sure. Thank you for having me. The organisation that I run, Wheels for Wellbeing, is celebrating its 10th birthday this year, so that's very exciting. Very exciting. And what we've been doing for the last 10 years is trying to ensure that disabled people are, as you say, able to enjoy the magic of cycling. And Basically, all our work is focused on removing barriers to cycling for disabled people. And that can be the most practical and physical terms in terms of physical barriers, but also in terms of the fact that, you know, we all have barriers in our own heads about what we think cycling is Mm -hmm. and cycling looks like. And therefore, a lot of people just think that, you know, I can't cycle because what they mean is I can't cycle on two wheels on the road balancing or whatever, therefore I can't cycle. So we're there to remove those barriers. And what we do a lot of is we own a large fleet of standard and non-standard cycles, and we make it available to people who experience barriers to cycling. So we make those cycles available at venues away from the road to remove that particular barrier of which is not only experienced by disabled people but Mm -hmm. which is the fear of cycling on the road so you remove the road you put your cycles at a venue away from the road and we ensure that it's the whole spectrum of cycles which we make available so really 99% of the time whoever turns up on our doorstep can actually cycle so we literally put disabled people and cycles together and we make it work. Uh, and that's with not only our cycles, but also our wonderful instructors and volunteers. So uh, that's what we do very locally in three areas of South London. And then because we're a, an organisation run by disabled people who all have a really good understanding of those barriers to cycling, but also we are disabled cyclists ourselves, we have become also a campaigning arm because we've realised that there are plenty of disabled cyclists out there, actually. There's there's many of us. Plenty of us also cycle on the road Mm. in traffic or or in uh, rural areas or greenways, etc. But we still experience barriers to our cycling, i.e. we are often limited in the amount of cycling that we can do, not by our physical characteristics, but by the way the infrastructure and the services around cycling are organised and designed. So the fact that nobody else out there was saying this, and whenever we say it, people go, oh, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. We decided actually we needed to take a role in actually advocating on behalf of disabled cyclists and putting their voice out there. So we are a, an inclusive cycling provider in South London and we are now also a campaigning organisation. Coming much more national on that front. Yeah, if we start with the inclusive cycling and giving people opportunity to ride bikes, I'm always blown away whenever I see your videos or your galleries by just the amount of bikes there are. I know about tandems and I know about trikes and I know about recumbents, but I've never seen a tandem tricycle or or a side-by-side bike or bikes that you can link to your actual wheelchair. But those are really, really exciting to me. 
Oh, absolutely. And the sad thing is that that's right. Hardly anybody knows about those. Mm. Even though they exist, there are no limits to what human beings can do with their design uh, powers and their intelligence. So really, there are solutions for absolutely every situation. And it's just one of the big areas that we are trying to change is exactly the fact that the way cycles are represented is generally limited to the bicycle. Yeah. So as you say, people have some sort of basic understanding of the fact that tandems exist because they do see them occasionally. And tricycles, well, they were there before bicycles and, you know, people are sort of aware of tricycles and also every little child often starts on a tricycle. Mm -hmm. So that people are aware of those. But very rarely are the huge array of other cycles represented in cycling imagery. So that's one of our sort of really exciting areas of work as well, is to try and engage with photographers, with people who are putting out imagery of cycles to one start creating uh, an image library which is much more varied than the bicycle Mm. and two, to start getting people who are constantly putting out images of cycles either because they campaign about cycling or because they write reports about cycling or because they put marketing campaigns about cycling to start using different images Uh, not only have we had uh, too long especially in this country of cycling being represented as white males on two wheels and we are getting a bit better at representing at showing women and older people and people of different ethnic groups etc But really, disabled people at the wheel (laughs) are very underrepresented and their cycles are very underrepresented. So there we are. We're hopefully going to change. We're we're being ambitious. We want to change the perception of the general population as to what cycling looks like. Because until we do that, I think, that main barrier of people saying, well, I can't cycle because I can't cycle on two wheels on the road, will remain. You've got to be able to see people like you. I've got to see, be able to see people like me out there as incidentally as I see cycling, not necessarily in front of my own eyes on the street, but actually on posters, in reports, on the TV, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated with how hand cycling, for example, was very, very invisible until the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so once every four years, we suddenly know about Karen Dark, for example, because she might win a medal yeah. and her story is incredible. But we don't see it so much. From my point of view, looking at sports cycling, the yeah. UCI is doing a lot better about putting out images of, you know, here's our paracycling yeah. uh, Road World Cup, for example. But there's still, yeah. it tends to get put in the media by, oh, look, here's someone with a very dramatic looking disability. That's right. That's and right. that's the picture we're going to show someone because, look, he's only got one arm and one leg, but he's on a bike. Yeah, yeah. And I'm uncomfortable with that, personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's when it's presented as some sort of heroic situation, which it helps no one other than whichever brand is using it to, to yeah. promote themselves or whatever. What we need to see are normal people who are of all ages and all impairments and all skin colours and etc., on all kinds of bikes and that will start making a difference in people's mind if we continue to only ever portray disability and cycling as a heroic sort of completely amazing thing that what a feat of uh, heroism this person is displaying it just reinforces the fact that in people's mind that well that's nothing to do with me and uh, yeah. oh well good for him kind of thing yeah 
So yes, definitely, we absolutely need to see a much wider array of, of cycles represented. And then that can start the journey in people's mind of saying, oh, I wonder if I can find something for me. That looks interesting. Let me just, you know, Google this or, you know, look into it, ask people more questions. Yeah. And I guess the fact that people can come to your drop-ins and try out all sorts of different things because it's quite expensive and it is difficult so being able to turn up and go well I'd quite like to ride and have someone else be able to fit them to the right mode of transport for what they want to do and for what they can do that's such a lovely thing to do oh absolutely well that's why I love most jobs so much <laughs> uh, but it, it is it's once people have realized that it may be an option for themselves then they need to be able to try it because as you say the kit doesn't come cheap well depending on what people need actually but either if you need a non-standard cycle often it doesn't come cheap but one you have to be able to go and try it two actually for a lot of people it isn't about expensive kit it's just about one the confidence two a little bit of know-how in terms of adjusting things and sometimes a very specific bit of equipment for example if somebody has no grip in one hand for example well they might think I can't cycle because I wouldn't be able to brake or I wouldn't be safe blah 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 quite right if you're on a standard bike with no adjustments at all but if people come to our session or any of our colleagues sessions and just have a conversation with people who day in day out talk to people who've made cycling work for them, the chances will have something they can try or we will know somebody who's got something they can try or we will just be able to point them in the right direction. So if it is a lack of grip, then there are grip aids, which are very simple, or you can very easily cycle with just one arm that just means you you know you have both brakes on the one hand and you just work out your balance in a slightly different way and of course you may not be able to indicate on the side you've got no arm but you might find that actually as long as you communicate with the world around you by turning around and looking at people behind you and ma making it very clear you're turning that's all fine too so we we've got so many ways of stopping ourselves from doing something by thinking oh ooh, ooh, i can't do this coming to sessions like the ones we run and trying it and talking to other people who are doing exactly uh, the kinds of thing that you think you can't do is such a boost there's no stress nobody's going to judge you you're going to you know meet all kinds of other people the kind of places that the sessions that we run really blow people's minds in a really positive way because it suddenly removes all that anxiety because everything's possible wow yeah that's so inspiring you know I've got a friend who rides a trike because of her MS for example mm -hmm. who loved her bike and who losing cycling she felt yeah. was one of the things that was just devastated her about her you know many other things have didn't mm. cause devastated her about her diagnosis yeah and then you hear about older people who can't walk to the bus stop and stand at the bus stop but they can use a trike or they can use a recumbent or something and it's just absolutely it's just and with electric bikes mm -hmm. the future become, mm -hmm. I, mean, I live in a very hilly city bristol yeah but with electric bikes in the future adding some electricity to your tricycle or, or, to, or to your tandem or whatever is, is going to change the world even more absolutely absolutely and that's where we've got to just demystify all this sort of uh, there's a really bad habit in this country because we're seeing 
a lot of the time or talking about cycling in a sort of sports uh, yeah. related and, and not <laughs> not criticizing you for doing that. No, People need to be doing that as well. But in the gener- general public, that is what is seen as cycling is the, the, the sporty yeah. element. And therefore, as soon as people start seeing electric bikes, for example, they can't help themselves. The first thing that comes out of their mouth is, oh, but that's cheating. Yeah. I cannot tell you <laughs> yeah. how irritated I feel when people say that. They say that to me because my clip-on handbike is power assist. And the first thing they, they say as they realize that I've got battery pack on the front, oh, but that's cheating. And that's really <laughs> red rag to bull for me because... That is exactly the kind of attitude which, again, will stop people from considering it because at the back of their mind, they don't want to be seen as as cheating. Actually, the only person you would be cheating if you didn't have the e-assist and if the e-assist is what makes you able to go up hills that you come across when you don't know an area, etc., or start up at at the light, the only person you'd be cheating is yourself. And, and then also, of course, the NHS on top of that, because by cycling, we're all uh, keeping ourselves better and fitter for longer and, and saving the NHS loads of money. Mm. It's nothing like cheating. Of course, if you're in a race against each other and it's all about stamina and fitness and somebody suddenly appears with an e-bike, that's a different thing altogether. But in day-to-day cycling, as you say, whether it's in hilly areas or whether it's because somebody is having a bit of arthritis in their knee or their hips and actually putting the required amount of strength through the, the pedals is becoming painful, well, adding e-assist then yeah. ensures that you can continue to cycle. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. Or if someone has a condition where their energy levels fluctuate or what they can do that's from a right. day-to-day level fluctuates. No, I, I've never understand it because Absolutely. we wouldn't say, we wouldn't say um, you know, there's all sorts of things like you don't say... Um, I don't know, someone's taking their scooter to school is cheating. Yeah. Or, well, exactly. You, or you don't say someone looking up when the trains are on, you know, to make sure they get to the train mm-hmm. uh, on, their, on their mobile phone is cheating. That's it's right. it's That's kind right. of, it's just, absolutely. it's just normal. It's yeah, absolutely. I went on critical mass in London. I think it was about a year ago. I met this woman who was on, uh, herself on critical mass on a two-wheeler, cycled alongside each other for a little while chatting. And she's came to me and asked whether I had ESIS because she could see the power pack on the front. And so we shared our, our irritation, exactly <laughs> this, this, like the kind of conversation we've just had. And uh, she's got lupus. And for her, since having realized ESIS was uh, available and uh, ended up being affordable for her, she's gone back to cycling. She's gone back to not only to cycling, but to being able to cover miles and actually get back to having an active life rather than doing a tiny bit of cycling, being in pain, then for for three Mm. days being in bed. It's that amount of difference that it makes to people's lives. And it's just ridiculous to be trying to over either regulate it or over uh, stigmatize it. The British Heart Foundation, not so long ago, they run their big fundraiser, the London to Brighton ride. And it's a fundraising ride. It is not a race. And for a long time, they had a rule against the use of (laughs) e-assist. Oh no! And it's like, excuse me, you're the British Heart Foundation. Yeah, the group that they're working for are people who could benefit from ESIS. Exactly, but for some reason they had it in their minds that ESIS was just wrong. And and 
luckily, a company from uh, Colston started a campaign and, and we, we picked that up and we wrote in as well in, in support of that campaign. And now it's been changed. And it's removing all those ridiculous attitudinal barriers, because again, that's just another message to people, you know, you're not, excuse the phone ringing in the office, <laughs> you're not good enough, a, a cyclist, to, to take part in our ride and to, and even worse, to fundraise for us. That's just a ridiculous message. <laughs> oh, so bad. So, Absolutely. So oh. things are changing. Things are changing. And, and we're really pleased to see that uh, the British Heart Foundation changed their mind. And we want to see e-assist starting to be part more and more routinely of, for example, uh, cycle hire schemes. Yeah. Uh, so back to the fact that, you know, investing in a cycle can be expensive. You want to have opportunities to try it. And also, if you're only going to need to cycle, but, you know, you come into London, you, you, you're you coming to King's Cross and you're you're going to uh, a meeting in somewhere in town and then you're going back on the train. Well, if your cycling is usually a, an e-bike, you want to be able to rent one when you get to London. Yeah, yeah. And at the moment, that is not available. So we're working with Transport for, um, for London to, to, to see how quickly they could start. They, they, they know that it's an important area. It's, it's obviously it's expensive to start investing in, an, in a new fleet and also it requires a slightly different management um, of the bikes um, in terms of where can you uh, reliably expect to find a, a, an e-bike, etc. But we really hope that that will be brought on in London and in other cities. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's, it's so... Sorry, my, my mind's blown. <laughs> so many questions so many questions so let's talk about the campaigning you're not the largest organization in the world are you but you Uh, definitely punch you definitely punch above your weight oh thank you and i think it's been interesting because i think i first knew about you with the video that you did of yourself cycling in london and then the Uh, and then the piece in the guardian last year um that seems really interesting. And obviously I hear about you through people like Dr. Rachel Oldroad at the University yeah. of Westminster. How, how do you guys go about campaigning and how do you decide where to put your resources, your limited mm-hmm. resources? Mm, absolutely. So we started off putting our, our sort of campaigning brains and, and policy brains together uh, about 2013. I think, uh, when then Mayor Boris Johnson's uh, vision for cycling was published. And we'd been going already a number of years, uh, since since 2007, and we'd been engaging with TfL for all those years in, in our small little ways. And we were absolutely appalled by the fact that there was no mention of disabled cyclists at all throughout the the whole vision document. Mm. So that was sort of (laughs) a bit irritating, to say the least. And then, of course, we realized that the great thing about the the vision document meant that suddenly it was putting TfL into, you know, a a new... um, it suddenly gave it a new mission, which was to invest, well, it gave it the, the resources and a new mission, which was to uh, really improve the conditions for cycling in, in London specifically. So that was a good point about it. But we realised very quickly that a new infrastructure was going to be part of that, which is great news. But for those of us who cycle wider and longer cycles, we suddenly realised that we could end up with in theory, improved conditions like segregated infrastructure uh, on the main roads. But if it was, for example, built without thinking about the wider and longer cycles, we could end up with new barriers in our ways. 
So there was a real sense of urgency because we really needed to make sure that the, the engineering standards that were going to be used uh, were going to be a fit for purpose so that they didn't, as I say, build new barriers, literally physical barriers to disabled people cycling or some disabled people cycling. And also we heard very late in the day that the London cycling design standards were being uh, redesigned. So we really had to get our act together very, very quickly and very first of all, start putting at least some general information and target it at the people who were working on these design standards, i.e. TfL and Brian Deegan in specifics, to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, let's make sure that you've got the information you need. So we put together a, a document, which is very much a, a draft policy document and information document, which had the very basic principles that we could think of about what inclusive cycling looks like. And we put together a little uh, list of the various main types of cycles, etc. So that was a very rushed job, but really important back in 2013. And uh, we got involved very, very speedily in talking to, uh, well, for example, we, we went and talked to Andrew Gilligan, the uh, commissioner at the time, because he'd famously said to uh, somebody that he'd never seen a disabled cyclist. So he'd obviously never thought about it and wasn't going to be asking TfL to do anything about that because he, he had no concept of it yeah. <laughs> so I cycled into his office and then <laughs> <laughs> no excuse now <laughs> no excuse now and, and give him his due he came out on we had a long good very fruitful conversation and then he came out on the ride with me and he even tried my hand cycle so you know he, he learns fast um, and that got us that really got us up the agenda in terms of you know his awareness and therefore and and also TfL's awareness and he started pushing for TfL to engage with us and opened a few doors that was in a way out of sudden desperation thinking oh my god we might actually be worse off with all this investment into London cycling infrastructure um, that pushed us to spend as you say some of the resources we haven't got into really putting our brains together and, and acting fast but also Obviously, realising that this was going to be a long, a long-term game, it wasn't just about getting the London cycling design standards influenced sufficiently so that inclusive cycling was part of it. And and to be honest, it was a really good document, and it, it, it it's continuing to to improve and and to include more and more about inclusive design features. So that's all we, we were very happy with that. But we realised that actually, of course, this is a much longer term game and there are so many people involved in cycling who need to be influenced and to, whose minds need to be changed about changing their awareness of who cycles out there, etc. We decided that we needed to actually build up our own st structures within our own organisation for the long term. So we're very fortunate at the moment to have a, a grant from Comic Relief to help us with adding some resources into the organisation to have a part-time policy and campaigns officer. And that's where we've started to really be able to to follow through a lot, in a lot more detail with... We've got a little manifesto for uh, what... Uh, disabled people want as far as cycling is concerned we're still only a tiny little bunch of us but we have a, at least uh, the ability to write articles to follow through with trying to meet politicians etc etc as I say it's a huge job because still even though we've been around and we're saying it louder and louder we we are still finding that very very few people uh, have a proper understanding of the potential that cycling creates for disabled people and also what that means in terms of 
all of their responsibilities uh, mm. towards uh, disabled people to ensure that we can all cycle. So we're fighting on so many different grounds. We, we're trying to get across the very basic, clear message that actually making cycling inclusive is a, it's about human rights. It's a human rights yeah. issue. It's covered by the Equalities Act in this country. And actually, if anybody who's, who works in cycling should be ensuring, just like buses should be accessible, well, cycling infrastructure should be accessible. Cycle parking hubs should be uh, accessible. And once people have realized that they have a duty to do that, then they need information and, and support about how to do that. So now we're sort of moving on to people then then say, oh, OK, well, uh, oh, cycle parking, I never thought about that. So what's the standards and what's the, how do we do that? What are the, it's like, uh, hang on a minute, we'll, we'll pause, we're going to go and work that out <laughs> oh, and influence the legislators so that they start putting enforceable standards out there. Because, of course, there's plenty of builders and developers and designers and planners and different authorities who are constantly bringing up new stuff and they are going to follow the manual and at the moment the manual doesn't say very much about inclusive cycling other than we were really pleased to be able to be involved in uh, the rethinking of uh, a particular bit of guidance that and standards that apply to Highways England. So it's, it's not TfL, it's not it's not local authorities, but Highways England put out a, an interim advice notes, as they call them, um, as a as a sort of adjustment to the roads and bridges manual or something. I can't remember the exact title, <laughs> but in there there is a legally enforceable standard for anybody who uh, puts together cycling infrastructure in the name of, of Highways England, they have to use this standard, which is called the cycle design vehicle. And this wonderful cycle design vehicle will, if they build to that, they will build for all uh, the possible cycle vehicles out there, i.e. the tandems, the trikes, the side-by-sides, the, the recumbents, because it will fit within that. Basically, if you build for the largest, longest yeah. possible cycle and you think about their turning circles and their uh, sight lines, if people tend to be slightly sitting slightly lower, etc., etc., if you build your infrastructure around that, then all of us can get through and all of us can be safe on the cycle infrastructure. So that's a huge win. Uh, and that came out in um, uh, just last year in the autumn. Um, and we're hoping that that starts getting absorbed into more local um, design standards. And at some point, maybe a national all-encompassing cycling design standard. So we're getting involved with some really sort of technical stuff and learning very fast uh, with the help of engineers, etc., who would get it and who, who are helping us to say, right, okay, well, there's this going on at the moment. You know, let's invite you to this particular meeting or that particular meeting. And um, it's really helping us to, to move things along. So we've campaigned for changes to, to design standards, that's really important for the long term. And then really the basic campaign, the overall encompassing campaign for us uh, at the moment is to have cycles recognised as mobility aids. Mm -hmm. Because people say, well, yeah, obviously nobody's going to challenge somebody who's wheeling along the pavement in their wheelchair, obviously nobody's actually batting an eyelid very much about people moving along the pavement on their uh, mobility scooter. Mm -hmm. People think, well, if you're using a mobility scooter, you're obviously a disabled person. And that's what the 
legislation says is that you know that's a mobility aid. Well, if the the same person wanted to actually travel actively, couldn't walk any more than they could before, but they are starting to use a tricycle, yeah. but they're not confident enough to be on the road and they're on the pavement or they are going through the park on their tricycle. They get challenged. They get told, I'm sorry, sir or madam, there's no cycling here. And actually, there is a case going to court next month about uh, an older lady, a 68-year-old lady, who's just yet again is being taken to court by Hampstead Heath Constabulary for cycling on a path which is no cycling. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. She was not even cycling her tricycle. She was scooting it along with her, you know, one foot on the, you know, sat on the saddle, one foot scooting along and the other one on the pedal because she knows she's a pedestrian when she's on on a non-cycling path, but she can't walk her bike. She can only scoot it. And she's no danger to anyone. And, of course, enforcers already can use their discretion but no, they've chosen not to use it, and they've chosen to take her to court for the second time, and she's been threatened with a fine even bigger than she got last time. But the only way she can get to the women's pond at, at Hampstead Heath for her, however, regular bit of swimming so she can get some, uh, you know, keep physically fit, is by cycling there, because that's her mobility aid. So that's a huge campaign for us, because that is completely putting people off. If you, For most people cycling, you can cycle most of the way, and then you can leave your bike where it's meant to be left, or you can walk it through pedestrianised area, and you can get back on the saddle the other side. The difference with disabled cyclists is some of us have no option but to continue cycling. If we're going to get out of our door at all on yeah. our cycles, we have to be able to cycle all the way to our destination. And yeah. it's very much a door-to-door yeah, yeah. Um, mode of transport. And it means that, as I said before, we're saving the NHS lots of uh, you know, money. We're saving ourselves. We're, we're hopefully going to die slightly less young than we often do because you know we're at, because of our sed- sedentary lifestyles. We we often die much younger than the general population. So we're trying to do something about it. And we as far as as long as we've discovered cycling and we've started making it part of our lives, the last thing we need is for people to start taking us to court for using our mobility aid in places where they wouldn't bat an eyelid if we were on a wheelchair. But we can get there in a wheelchair. You have to cycle there if you're going to be active as much as you want, uh, as much as you can. I mean, I myself, I'm not particularly a a weakling, but I can't push my wheelchair on pavement half or a tiny bit as far as I can cycle. And therefore, the option isn't, you know, to take the wheelchair if if I can't take the bike, it's to take the car. And if I take the car, I'm not, yeah. being active whatsoever yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I'm just sitting there and then I get the wheelchair out of the car and I continue sitting there <laughs> when I've cycled between you know one yeah. destination at one starting point and my destination I've actually got my heart pumping so I personally don't get challenged by enforcers because I am cycling from my wheelchair so they can see they're not they don't need to think they can see I'm a disabled person and and of course if I was being reckless in a pedestrianized area I'd, I'd be to- they'd be totally right to be challenging me and to be telling me to get off. And so long as we're not being reckless, we're being cautious and, and respecting and, and considerate of pedestrians in pedestrianised areas. And if our bikes is our mobility aid, we should be allowed to cycle there. Wow. So that's a huge campaign. Yeah. For people listening who aren't disabled or who 
or who are disabled and haven't done any campaigning, I guess. Mm. Is there anything that we can do to help you? I mean, obviously we can donate money on the Wheels for Wellbeing site at wheelsforwellbeing.org.uk. But Thank you for that. <laughs> you have a, a handy donation button on every page. There's no excuse. Um, but is there anything else that we can do to help you? either with specific cases as this terrible one. I expected to hear that that case, when I first heard about it, was someone who had an invisible disability. You know, someone who was maybe 25 and had an invisible disability no, and, no, a bike, no. and a bike that looked like a bike. But when you hear yeah. it's a 68-year-old woman on a tricycle, that yes. just seems egregious. It Absolutely. Just... <laughs> Absolutely. So in terms of helping, I think, yes, definitely keeping up with our campaign, maybe on social media or, you know, putting the word out there and raising awareness locally because, of course, it's, it is absolutely not a London-specific issue. Mm-hmm. Spreading the message is absolutely crucial for us. And sharing the fact that we exist with other disabled cyclists out there, I think, is, is also really important because what we need to get away from is this idea that, oh, well, it's only one or two people out there, you know, hardly anyone, um, you know, I've never seen a disabled cyclist, therefore there aren't any out there. Uh, actually, there's huge amounts of us, but we're not connecting with each other at the moment mm-hmm. because we, we don't even know that we're not the only one, you know. Yeah. I saw a, another woman on a hand cycle go, go by in London the other day and it just gave me such a boost. I thought, oh, my God, I'm not alone. But, of course, we're not alone, but we don't necessarily connect with each other. And we don't necessarily see each other, but with social media, with the internet, people can sign up or let people know about our campaigns, newsletters, for example. And then if people have their own story uh, they could share with us, then that can be added to our bank of case studies. That can be our next case study in our next uh, newsletter. So we really need to shift that thing about, oh, it's really niche. It's really a tiny number of people. Actually, I think it's huge. And so many people are suffering in isolation. So this lady, if we don't get to challenge her case uh, successfully, she might eventually decide she can't afford to carry on uh, trying to stay fit and well because she might get another fine. You know, she gets 95 quid a week on her pension. If she, you know, if every time she goes out, she's threatened, you know, an increasing fine, she's just going to have to stop, you know, because she's yeah. going to not afford. So uh, I think people are really, th- you know, people's um, ability to cycle out there is threatened by all these kinds of things. And if we don't hear about it, we don't put it out there in the media it will just carry on and we need good stories so we need successes we hope that this this case will be able, we will be able to help we know that tfl have heard about it and they're talking to the police and they're hoping to start changing things locally in london but you know we want to hear success stories from across the country and and internationally to start bolstering this case and stopping this stereotype that well this is tiny numbers so sharing stories with us would be really exciting spreading uh, the the messages that uh, we're putting out um, uh, through whatever means you know whether it's the local press or whether it's the uh, whether it's social media etc would really help us Um, if there are as I say, lo- local individuals who don't know about us, please tell them about us and, and they can connect with other disabled cyclists across the country. And anybody who's a photographer or who's a journalist or who is able to put stories out there into the press or, you know, yourself with your podcast, etc., that's all fantastically helpful because it's taking the message out to the mainstream 
so yes, absolutely, and and also researchers. I mean, we as you mentioned, we're working with Rachel Aldred at Westminster University, and there is plenty more scope for more research in this field, for more evidence gathering, for more, um, you know, in all sorts of areas, whether it is the sociology and you know the profile of cyclists etc whether it's to do with engineering standards wh- whatever you know people who are working out there who have anything to do with cycling if they would like to do more research we have lots of ideas about what could be done and we have definitely not got the resources to do it ourselves but we can find ways of connecting researchers to end users so yes but basically spread the spread the word is, is the main thing <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and support us if you can yeah. uh, in, in, in terms of, if nothing else, the odd donation or, or small regular donations or, or big donations are really welcome because we want to be able to continue past the current Comic Relief uh, grant, which is for another two years. But after that, we want to continue this campaigning work and, and our policy and campaign officer will, will be needing to be paid from different funds. So it, if it's possible, we will uh, be trying to gather more donations for that work. Excellent. Well, and if anyone is interested in cycling with a disability, but they're not in London, you can put them in touch with other places around the country too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There are growing numbers of excellent and varied providers of, of cycling opportunities. And the great thing is, the other thing people can do as well is, if if you're part of a, a mainstream cycling club, or you know you, you you're cycling, you're not disabled, but you you know about cycling organisations take a few minutes to think how can I improve you know how can I w- make what we do as a cycling club or as a uh, or a volunteering group in our local you know cycling campaign or whatever how can I look out and do more to ensure that disabled people are included in our club included in our campaign locally etc because that's how things are going to start moving uh, uh, for people locally as well well massive 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 good luck huge good luck obviously i'll be following your work um very eagerly um if people want to find out more wheels for well-being is at wheelsforwellbeing.org.uk and you're also on facebook aren't you and on twitter we are we are indeed twitter handle is at wfw news excellent and you yourself you're at isabel clement on twitter if people want to follow you and i'll put links of all these things on my website prowomenscycling.com and also some interesting things that i've seen on the world for well-being site that i think people might be interested in thank you so much for your time and huge huge good luck thank you very much indeed